And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my, by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Hey, we're here and you know what time it is. It's time to give the people the best deal on the internet, a podcast free of advertisements as well as the rock bottom, lowly priced scholar program. <laughs> that is right. We are... <laughs> The people's champs, because you can listen to this without any ads, and the reason you can do is because everything John and I do is supported by the Scholar Program, which is a better and better deal every day. What do you get in the Scholar Program? Well, you change your coaching life, because you get courses that teach you from everything from the physiology to the psychology to the recovery to training for every event imaginable. We have gone deep and outlined everything you need to do. More than that, you join in on the Scholar Clubhouse, which is a group of almost 300 individuals. Yeah, it's awesome. Who are just in our own little world talking track. Yeah. Talking running. Talking, you know, talking shop. Just like we would at a meet or a road race, except we get to do it every day. Yeah. And it's... It's smart, intelligent talk. It, so. it is. I mean, we had this really nuanced discussion about fueling for the marathon and ultra marathon events with several scholars going back and forth about, you know, the, what ratio of like glucose to fructose to ingest, you know, trying to figure out how to uh, manifest fatty acid, uh, you know, fueling um, substrate influence, um, you know, grams of sugar per hour. Um, graduating that, like you, you name it. It was pretty uh, in depth and nuanced with you know research studies being thrown out, people's own experiences, as well as um, uh, you know evidence from other coaches that they knew. Like, I mean, you can't get this by reading the top ten ways to fuel you know for your upcoming marathon on the internet. This is you know in real time, and it's just an exciting thing to see. Exactly, and you know what? This is the best deal on the internet. Because for less than a dollar a day, you get all of this. And the price has not changed. With inflation. In that's insane. <laughs> as, as inflation, you know, I think in May, we just found out, went up something like 8%, the consumer price index. The price for the Scholar program has, has steadfastly stayed the same. So we have not hit you in your wallet. Um, like everywhere else, we have said, you know what? We're going to do our best to support coaches and and keep it a reasonable price for as long as we can until we've got to, you know, bump it up. So Right. And nor is it shrinkflation or stagflation where you're actually getting less. You're actually getting more and yeah. by the day paying less. This is literally now the best deal on the internet. <laughs> That's right. It's a better and better deal. So get on, get on board before we, you know, come to our senses and course correct, uh, price correct with everybody else in the world. Because you of inflation. So, yes, we might raise to a heady dollar and a quarter a day. Yes. 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 <laughs> All right. So talking about training today, we're going to dive into, you know, one of my favorite topics, individualizing training. Only in larger settings. Oof, and a tough, and tough think, topic. Yes. I think this is something that is underappreciated because we often hear, oh, yes, you got to individualize your training, individualize your training. And it often comes from the top down, from professional coaches, and they're just like, individualize your training, which is pretty easy when you've got, you know, eight people to worry about on a team or whatever have you who are training together. It's much more difficult when you've got 20 30 40 50 60 80 plus yeah 80 individuals and how in the world are you going to individualize training when you're balancing all of these things so we're going to dive into that and see okay individualized training is great but what's the trade-offs and and how do we do this in a larger setting without losing our minds <laughs> I think first and foremost, you know, we have to come back to what we're doing, right? You're working with people. So to individualize the people, you have to get to know the individual. Um, you know, without that, I think we can talk about physiology, psychology, we can talk about all these scientific things and variables and influences, but without getting to know at some level, 
the individual you're working with um, on a personal level that is appropriate for your setting, the individualization efforts are going to fall short. Yeah, that's a great point. And it reminds me of um, the famed York coach, Joe Newton, who had, again, hundreds of kids out. And he would always say, you know, I need to meet every single one, you know, before practice, they'd come up and shake his hand and meet and talk to him. And he'd be like, I need to know their names. And he'd he'd give every kid a nickname. And (laughs) when you're talking about hundreds of kids, that goes a long way to say, hey, I'm, I see you. I know you. I remember you. Like, that's what it's all about. And that's like the first step is like, yes, individualization is important, but you have to get to know your kids or your athletes or what have you. And that's why, you know, in my own, when I was college coaching, the first thing I always did was to make it easier on myself is I sent out a very brief survey that said like, tell me everything about yourself, your motivation, your past training, all this, all this stuff. Right. And that gave me like this initial, okay, I can go through this, I can understand everybody and then start building that relationship and and like understanding where they're coming from so that I know not only what works psychologically and what they're motivated for, but also what they might need physiologically and what they've done before and what they haven't done and all that good stuff. Yeah, finding the time, finding that place to create that connection, that individual connection with the athletes is key. For me, it was always in the weight room. So that's why I always you know, was fortunate enough to be in programs, whether it's in the high school or collegiate level, where I was also the strength and conditioning coach for the distance runners that I was working with. And what that does is it allows, it allowed me during the rest periods or rest intervals, right? When you're not doing anything in the weight room, right? Between lifts, between sets, what have you, or series of uh, reps and sets to actually just get in there and have that one-on-one dialogue with someone. And I would also like at the collegiate level, be able to Um, have the opportunity to kind of wave load, so to speak, the interval of time of people coming in. So instead of having these 30, 40 distance runners athletes I was working with, you know, we would have 15 at a time or 10 at a time, and they just come in at different intervals because the weight room was kind of small, so couldn't support that many of people all at once. Um, But because of that, everyone, you know, we kind of clustered them by um, their grade, right? So it'd be like, and, and or schedule if necessary, but mostly it'd be like underclassmen and upperclassmen, men and women, right? So divided into four groups. And with that, that is where a lot of connection happened, or I know a lot of people and just talk to them on a more personal level versus when you are out there and your only setting and vehicle is the track or the course, or, you know, if you send them out to the, the trail for a run, you know, it doesn't really give you that time to connect or even like in the van ride or the bus ride. Again, those are opportunities, but they're so inconsistent. And that's the key, I think, to individualization and connection is having a consistent home base that you regularly meet that allows you that opportunity. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I think it's the way I looked at it is where are those in between times where I can connect? Mm -hmm. And I do that, you know, similarly for a while until I got booted from it. I do our strength and conditioning as well. And that provides a nice, easy place because, yes, you're working hard, but you also have these rest intervals where it's like, you know, it's different from out on the track. One of the things, especially early in my career, I tried to do as well is I just rotate who I ran with on easy days and like really try to spend time like getting to know people on easy runs. Um, because again, you're killing time, you're out there for an hour and you're gonna have to talk about something. So you talk about stuff and that was always important. And then the other point that I think was really important is, um, I tried to make my office a place where kids could hang out in between workouts and classes and all that stuff. And I'd have tons of chairs in there and all that stuff. And I always found that really important because like it gave people a place to hang out, but more so it gave people the room to kind of chat with me and talk with me. And like, I get to know what they're looking for. And then the other part that I think is important as well is 
trips. <laughs> when you go on trips, especially as college athletes, but it works as high school if you go to state meet or whatever have you, you have downtime. Lots of you it, have yes. Lo- <laughs> you have lots of downtime. You have time to kill. You have time where, you know, you're sitting at either in a hotel or a track meet or whatever have you. It's like be open to just kind of hanging out. And often on those trips, like those conversations would come up on, you know, what the athlete is doing right, what they need to improve on, what's working, what's not, all those good things. And I always thought, or even plane rides for, again, college athletes, but it's like those in-between moments give you the time to be like, okay, let's figure out who this person is, what they're motivated by, what they tend to like, what they don't like, et cetera. And that gives you a, a foundation for uh, for individualizing their, their coaching and training. Yeah. I mean, and the other opportunity too, as I've always divided the um, practice time when I've been coaching in the kind of like group setting, whether it's a, a club team or a scholastic team into three components, right? You have pre-run exercises, the running exercise itself for the day, and then the post-run exercises. And those are, can all be different, but that pre and post-run time, you know, there's only maybe a handful of different exercises they're doing, whether the pre-run it's wickets or something else, or, you know, band drills, what have you, um, or in the post-run, you know, different medicine ball work or plyometric work or what have you. But that's an opportunity where once you get um, the upfront teaching and learning of those exercises out of the way, it gives you that nice five to 15 minute window before they start to do their running exercises and activity for the day before and after to then go around and make the rounds. Um, and that's always, I think first and foremost, like that's what we're essentially talking about is how do you quote unquote, make the rounds, whether it's the Joe Newton handshake, you know, Steve's, um, in between times, my weight room or pre-run times and post-run times that you is the first thing you have to figure out. How can you consistently make the rounds? Cause if you don't do that, um, and you become just, in the eyes of the athletes, this disseminator of prescriptions of today, we're going to do this today. We're going to do that. Blah, 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 blah. Here's the reasons why, um, you know, that without that lack of consistent connection, that's renewed, you know, a daily basis almost, or a high frequency basis based off your interaction with the athlete. Like we said, all this effort to individualize their actual X's and O's about what they're doing is going to fall short. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is, Again, the key is like, how do you meet them kind of where they're at and be open to it? And the larger the team, the more difficult this is. But you look for your moments, you know, often as a a coach, you know, similar to what you said about when they're doing wickets and all that stuff is before workouts, I saw it as my job and responsibility to go around and like at least say hi or whatever, have a brief exchange with everybody on the team. And I'd often do that during after they do their, you know, two mile warm up or whatever have it, and they start going through all their drills. Is I just walk up and down the track or around wherever and just like, you know, give some fist bumps, say hi, ask how people are doing, etc. And it's like those moments are often um, are very powerful. Yeah, I mean, even at the high school I've been working at recently, our head coach is really good at that. He will, you know, start off every practice with kind of like his little like stump speech about whatever, you know, they need to be aware of logistics, this or that upcoming meet, what have you. Right. And then everyone disperses into the team warm up led by the seniors um, leadership group. And then they disperse into their event groups. Right. And at that early period in dispersing into the event groups, he essentially he is for the next 20 minutes just going around to the event groups before we start actually getting going in the heart of the meat of our um, you know work for that day and just making that fist bump high. So like even though he doesn't necessarily coach any individual event group specifically because we have enough assistants who are there um, daily, He's there and ready and accessible to any kid for whatever reason. He's more like my job is to put out fires or make sure the kid, you know, has another layer of connection and feels part of this program. And or should a coach, you know, um, not be able to practice one day, he'll step in and fill in the void. 
for that. And it'll be a seamless transition of being like, oh, the head coach is going to come in and, you know, overlook the distance workout today because, you know, I have like, you know, a dentist appointment or whatever. And it's not this um, thing where it's like the distance kids are like, oh, what does he know? He's a pole vaulter and hurdler background. It's like, no, we know him. We trust him. We're good with him. Okay. We, he can execute this task. Like even something as simple as that, you know, making those daily rounds and just being seen and heard at that kind of higher level, uh, again, goes a long, long way to make people feel like you are connected to them and you care and you know them by name on site. And that's the other key thing is I'm really bad at names at first, but once I, I keep saying it, I get to know it, I get to know it because putting that name in front of everything is also a first step of individualization, whether it be in an email, uh, in a training uh, you know, plan, just constantly having the athlete's name associated with something that you are giving them is another key layer to create that individualization and that layer of uh, intimacy and connection that this is mine. This is for me. Coach really thought about it. Yeah, no, I think, I think that is important as it's again, that feeling that you're valued and that you're listened to and that, you know, for the athletes that this is my idea on plan. Okay. So we've got, we established this, right? And it takes, this is laying the groundwork. Yes, yeah, step one. <laughs> because step one, laying the groundwork. Because if, if you don't have that connection or that understanding, then like, A, you can individualize training. And then B, athletes aren't going to think you are because they're just going to be like, well, how can they individualize? How can they know what's best for me? They don't even know me. So step one, lay the groundwork. Doesn't have to all be running related, as I said. It's get to know them, get to see that, get them to see that you care about them as a as a person, person and know yes. who they are, yes. and all that good stuff. Yeah. Next is then okay. the athlete. You know the the athlete yeah. and their needs. Yes, and I think that's an important distinction because it's person than athlete. Because the athlete, what does the athlete mean? It means understanding their strengths, their weaknesses, what tends to work for them, what tends to not work for them, where their motivation behind running, et cetera, competing, all of that is. Basically, you're looking, the way I kind of look at it is I'm looking for um, what kind of model of athlete are you? And this can be both physiologically and psychologically, meaning like, are you the type psychologically that is kind of needs the stress competition etc or are you the type that like enjoys the training process etc and racing is just the other thing that you do and and often you need to kind of calm down before you do it for example from a physiological standpoint are you more i simplify it i say are you more fast twitch orientated or slow twitch orientated for your event right where are you coming from um and that tells me a lot of, okay, like, you know, for example, the simplest is 800 athlete. Are you coming more from the bottom up, the speed side or the endurance side? Or are you really just kind of a specialist at 800 meters? That shifts kind of your expectations. And as a high school, when you're coaching high school coach or high school, what I often do is Think of, okay, these are your, this is probably your inclination, but because you're young, I need to make sure that like I give you this spectrum or barrage of different things so that like, yes, you might be a future 5k, 10k or marathon athlete, but I still got to develop this other side because like that is going to be a limiting factor at, at some point. Yeah. So hmm. I like it. Um, my approach is a little different. Uh, you know, for me, I, what well, here's what, how I do it, Steve. I look at, you know, basically it's a classroom, right? Like we're, you know, that's my worldview is coaches or teachers first. And so whatever level you're coaching at, you're teaching in some degree. And so what is the core thing you're trying to teach? And I think as a coach or a teacher, you have to make that decision personally. So for me, my core thing I'm globally trying to teach is how, teach people how to be competitive, be competitive in a safe way, be brave, take risks, you know, um, be in the moment and compete against other human beings uh, that they find themselves in at the 
you know, critical moment in a race versus worrying about the clock and the time, since that is a little bit more artificial. And now, as we're seeing more technology dependent um, based off your application availability, super shoes or not. So that's kind of what I try to see is how competitive is this person right off the bat? And that's through observation, dialogue, you know, this individualization, asking about past experiences, how comfortable are they with competition? And they viewing competition in a really healthy way. Like it's okay to go and put myself out there and take a risk. Because a lot of people have a psychologically unhealthy view of the competition. It's a fear, uh, you know, it's scary, or, you know, using it to create, um, you know, self-worth and value through, oh, my time, you know, my status, my place, what have you, right? So that's kind of shaping people towards my, you know, quote unquote worldview of what I define as healthy competition um, uh, or, or healthy competitive capacity. So then from there, that's when, you know, I'll steal something from say, you know, uh, stock trading, which they call trading around the core, right? So it's this idea like you buy a stock and you have a certain amount that's your core, your base, and you never let that go because you, you, you have decided over time that you think this is going to go up in value. So whether it be 100 shares, 200 shares, who cares? But it doesn't stop you from trading around it. So you might buy 500 shares and then, you know, slowly sell off 200, but you'll always have that core that you trade around, right? Same thing here. As a coach, you know, I'm to individualize training, I'm individualizing around the core. And the core is certain abilities that we want in certain athletes psychologically as well as physically for that event group or that event cluster, right? So if you're a 4'8 runner, that's a little different ability than if you're an 8'15 runner for that cluster, even though the 800s both an anchor point in both that, um, in both those different clusters. And so from, from there, that's when we start to kind of build this out almost like a Venn diagram type thing where it's like, all right, so where's the psychological component in terms of your relationship with competitiveness and your history with that? Where is the physical aptitude for the core things that we need, whether it's speed, strength, endurance, coordination, et cetera, where, what's your like kind of durability, time commitment component and all those types of things. And then from there, we, I start to build out a pathway for that person that again, comes back to my core of capacities I'm trying to teach and also the core structure to my practice plan, right? I always have three sections that has kind of worked really well for me with three sections within the global practice of pre-run, run, post-run exercises. And even within the running act activity itself, there might be on a day like three parts to it, right? Like starting off with more of a fast speed thing as we are fresh, then more of a glycolytic thing um, component as we get a little fatigue, but not too much. And then finishing off with a more metabolic aerobic component as fatigue sets in. So then from there, we're, I'm able to kind of plug and play with the different pieces as necessitated by the athlete and their needs at that moment. That makes a lot of sense. I like it. I think that, again, gets slightly different way, but gets at the same issue and the same thing we're trying to handle here. Okay, so we've got how we kind of approach it. Now maybe we talk about how we approach it in larger settings. Because this is the crux of the podcast. Because we're talking about, hey, you got to get to know. Here's your, how you identify. And I can hear coaches say, yeah, yeah, I got it. But like now that I know kind of what they need or where to classify them or what group to put them in, how does that work when I got 50 people at the track all thrown in together? Right. Because it's not, it's as we all know, you know, practice never goes to plan. <laughs> <laughs> even though the plan is perfect and pretty and precise practice in a season never goes to plan. So it's really about troubleshooting right in the moment and having the capacity to be able to come up with the plan B, C, D, E, F on the spot. Yeah. And this is where I think really individualized training is, is in the group setting uh, what it's all about because here's how I look at it is okay. Yes. How do we individualize training in a large group? You can put people in groups, right, based on what they tend to need, right? You divvy it out. And what I like to do from a coaching standpoint is not have like, hey, here's my middle distance group and here's this group. 
I mix the groups up based on like what I think I need. And that's kind of part of the individualization of it. So for instance, I'll give you an example. When I was coaching college athletes, you know, um, all the 800 meter runners might come together for certain workouts, but then for, you know, maybe one hard workout every, every week or two weeks, like we'd split them up based on their, their individual needs where I'd send some with the kind of 1500 3k type athletes where I'm, you know, doing a longer thing and I'd send others, you know, down with kind of speed orientated or whatever have you as we'd shift every again so often so that I'm saying, okay, as a group, we're getting this, but individually, I'm going to make sure I'm taking care of some of your needs here and whatever have you and split them off. The other part of it is, you know, I can still hear people like, okay, I get it, Steve, like split people off every once in a while. But what happens in the workouts? This is where individualization is troubleshooting, as you just said. The key isn't, hey, I created these great individual workouts and all these groups for these different people. It's as I'm watching the workout, do I need to adjust for these individuals? And that's where I saw it come into play is I'd sit there and I'll give you a, a concrete example. If we've got a group doing five by mile at five minute pace, let's say, and all the groups doing roughly five minute pace. If all of a sudden I see part of that group struggle or not handling it in the way that I want, this is where the individualization comes because you're troubleshooting. You're saying, you know what? That workout that I thought, that I predicted, that I thought they would be best isn't best. So how do I modify and adjust this? And sometimes that's doing something like instead of miles, having people do 1200s. Sometimes that's giving people extra rest and doing something in between, maybe not for miles, but for instance, one of the things I'd often do if we were doing like eight by 800s, for example, and I knew that somebody, maybe I was pushing them up a group in terms of pace and all that stuff. I might give them number, let's say we're doing eight by 800. I might give them number six off, right? Because then it's like you get extended recovery. You're able to do the workout with everybody else and finish strongly because you just got, again, four, five minutes rest instead of, you know, one, two minutes rest or whatever have you. Um, so you're covered. You're in a good spot. You can do that stuff. And I think that is key. The other thing that I think, you know, another way I, I like to individualize training in a group setting is um, we'd go over to this this grass kind of large multi soccer fields, a field, and I'd have these loops. I'd have a big loop, a medium loop, and a small loop, and they were essentially I don't know like a thousand meters, you know, six hundred and fifty meters, you know, four hundred meters, right? And they all started in the same spot. It's just. At some point, the medium loop cut off and the small loop cut off, right, at different points. And what I liked about that is we would literally start every, uh, like, start the workouts, like, all together. And then as I watched things evolve, I'd be like, ah, you know what? Like, these people, you've got a medium loop this rep. These other people, you go a, a large you know, a long loop. And it created this dynamic where you're all training together, but you're kind of individualizing and adjusting and like pushing and pulling and like taking some stress off some people and like putting some stress on some people, you know, almost rep by rep. And I love doing that because it like forced me to pay attention and like, really focus on like, okay, what do, what do these kids look like? Oh, what do they need this next rep? And I think often what happens is we just get stuck on, well, I wrote the workout this way, so they're going to do the workout this way, and we lose out on that individualization. Yeah, that, it's getting clear about the point of the session, right? And that's where I'd love, again, 
and I come back to because it's so it's so simple but so you know succinct is Canova's are we studying the effort or are we studying the pace and that tells you what needs to happen because early in the season in more your general foundation or fundamental period you're studying the effort right so it's about duration it's about getting the effort in it's not pretty it's okay I mean if Canova can let world-class marathoners go from repeat K's at three minutes down to 3.30 for men and just, you know, say, don't matter, just get it in, teach the body the effort, pace, who cares? That's That will inform your decision-making uh, tree in the moment. But if you're studying the pace later on in the season, and that is the thing, the intensity, the speed, the rhythm is the key, then that will, again, will frame it and color it differently. Like what, you know, Steve, you said is giving people extra recovery because that's, you know, remember in a workout, right? We always have to come back to it. It's the second half of the session, which is the stressful part of a, a workout. The first half is free. That's essentially just getting enough global fatigue and whatever it may be to move past that, you know, and that's just more maintenance. But the second half is where recovery becomes the limiting factor, right? Or the pace becomes the limiting factor. And so either if the pace is the limiting factor for the duration, then what I would always do is just have them run shorter at the pace, right? Like I said, okay, we're going to do flying 150s and we want it to be at this pace and they start to fatigue even if we're extending recovery. Well, looks like they're getting that stimulus through 80 meters or they're getting that stimulus through 120 meters. So we'll back it off to that. That's okay. So, all right, everyone, you know, like Jimmy and Johnny, you guys are going to go 120 meters, you know, you know, uh, Timmy and, um, you know, J uh, Adam, you guys are going to go the full 150 because you're still getting the appropriate um, stimulus, right? Without the, uh, the wheels coming off, so to speak. Or, if like, yeah, we're doing more of a threshold-ish type session at five minute pace and recovery is a limiting factor, you know, Steve offered great insights, extending, you know, taking a rep off, or let's say take up, take the middle portion, delete the middle portion of it, right? So if you're running, um, you know, the miles will have those athletes who are fatiguing a little too soon or then anticipate go 600 middle quarter off while the other guys and gals are on the quarter and then hop in for the last 600, right? Because also, too, the thing without individualizing training in large settings is you don't want to create any isolation. Like, you want to have workout groups. You want to have that collaboration together, right? So it's figuring out a way and getting creative as a coach of knowing the stimuli you're trying to uh, impact the athlete with, but then also, too, not divorcing them from the ability to create that connection and embrace the suck together. <laughs> That's the key, right? Because anyone can go out and just embrace the suck solo. But, you know, as Steve has referenced, you know, before, research studies have shown that when you're suffering in a group, actually the elevation of the output is um, higher overall because you're commiserating with peers versus going solo. So if that opportunity presents yourself, by using as a compass, are we studying the pace now or are we studying the effort? That can, for me at least, really helps um, clarify what kind of revisions I need to make mid-session when I see the need for that pop-up. Yeah, you know, and I'll give another example. I remember when um, when uh, Brian Barraza was at his, at his peak in college and he was, you know, running 1330-ish in that. Our next fastest 5K guy was probably in like 1420-ish shape. And they still did a lot together because what we would do is we just, and, and the rest of the team that was in this is, what we do, would do is, for example, those 14, 20, 30, 40 guys would have, you know, let's say five by mile. We'll just use the example again. <laughs> and they'd have, two and a half minutes standing rest. Well, Brian would have that same five by mile, but he would have an 800 meter steady at like 520, 530 mile pace where it's like, you're not recovering, buddy. You know, like you're running 520 pace on your recovery, 
and then you're going to hop back in with these guys. And those are two different workouts, right? This was for 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 this for the 1420 guys, it was like, hey, this is going to be a, a kind of 10K, 5K specific workout. For Brian, it was here's our kind of alternation strength, you know, endurance workout. <laughs> and that was fine. We would get Brian's, you know, specific 5K work elsewhere. Um, but often that's sort of mean when you're looking at it in a group setting and let's say you have a stud, you know, you don't have to just put them off on an island. You can figure out ways how to get work in by manipulating these variables, whether it's speed, pace, recovery. Again, my favorite, one of my favorites was like making making the recovery hard um, and get them back in, in with other people. And often that is often, again, one of the best things that you can do because it makes sure your studs get used to running with people in practice. And often, you know, I remember this stuff is like the other kids, let's say again, we do five by mile. They got three minutes rest or two and a half minutes standing rest. Well, the fifth mile, they can crank it. Brian had no rest. You know, he's running 800s and whatever, 240, 245 is their rest. So he can't crank it, even though he's a faster athlete at the end. So it was this nice thing where it's like, here you have this guy who's clearly faster, but he's going to have to learn how to deal with like getting dropped by people who aren't quote, quote unquote, as good. And I think that is a, a, a skill that needs to be developed in practice that often isn't. Yeah, I, that's, I love that you brought that up. Yeah. Cause you know, that's sometimes the, um, the crutch or the cross that the standout athlete on a team has to bear is like, well, how do I get a stimulus in that's difficult for me when I'm so far advanced relative to, you know, my teammates. And you can do that also other ways, even cross from a, uh, you know, cross gender um, ability. Like when I was coaching, um, you know, Portland state, we had this really at the time, uh, highly competitive um, middle distance, distance uh, gal who was just, you know, 420, 1500 at that time, which was like, hundred meters almost, you know, faster than any other, my 1500 meter, um, women. So like, what do I, what did I do? Well, you know, I just said, Hey, we're going to have you actually like chase the guys. So like my 800 meter guys would be doing a, you know, more of a, uh, lactic dynamic session and they're running, you know, at 30, 29, 28. And I would say, all right, I want you to go as long as you can go at this speed with these guys. And for her, that was more of a high-end, you know, um, anaerobic type session where it's like, all right, we're really going to go for it. And so she would do, you know, like the, like say the 800 meter guys would do 10, 10 of these reps. Well, she would do five and her recovery would also be going on. So she do all the, you know, odd number, even number reps, every other rep essentially. So she got more recovery. We've got the neural speed component because she was being kind of pushed and challenged versus just going out on her own and trying to run fast solo when she really needed that, you know, um, that layer, added layer of difficulty. Why? Because that's what she was going to meet in a race with other women at her level that had that type of foot speed. And we couldn't replicate it in practice with, uh, you know, the other women. So we said, okay, what's the next best thing? It's going to be then, you know, with these guys running at an even type clip to really, you know, not only advance her physically, but also, you know, get her a little bit more robust and anti-fragile mentally. hundred uh, percent. I love doing that too. I remember again with some of my better college women, 1500 runners, whenever the guys, you know, my my uh, secondary group of male 1500 runners were doing something like traditional 10 by 400 with a minute rest. I would stick the girls in there and have them do, you know, four by 400 with, you know, whatever that came out, skipping reps. And, you know, they'd have to run 63, 64 or whatever, which is, was really pretty dang fast for them and get comfortable doing it while surrounded by a bunch of guys. <laughs> and, and I think there's, there's, again, there's like benefits, uh, benefits to that. And actuality, like I would, I remember, <coughs> you 
you know, doing this um, as well with some uh, very good elite level girls is on, on tempo runs for them um, or elite level college girls is like sticking them in with some of the steady, easy, like normal distance runs with my men. It's like, Hey, you're, you're, you know, for one of our better college, you know, uh, girls on 5k, 10k girl is like your tempo run is going to be, you know, spending six, seven, eight miles, whatever you can hang with the guys. And they'd be like, okay, what pace do I want to go? And I'm like, I don't care. I just want you to run with the guys. And I just tell the guys, I'd be like, do your normal thing, which is, you know, start off at, you know, 650, seven minute pace and then work down to where you're clicking off six minute pace or maybe feeling good and finishing a little bit faster on some of those, like, again, easy kind of runs. And I love doing that because it, again, introduced some uncertainty and then also brought kind of the men's and women's team together where it's like, oh, yeah, they're they're good. Like these people are good and they're going to help me out and I'm going to help them out and get respect and all that good stuff. So a lot of it is how can you get how can you get creative in um, individualizing within this group dynamic. And I know we're talking a, a lot about these one-offs of like sticking people with each other, but it, it, it occurs with the, the group as well is again, you know, I'm a big believer of, you know, mixing things up. So it's like, I would try and plan, you know, my maybe secondary group short tempo run where they're going like three, four miles. I try and mix that in with like my egg, my studs like eight nine mile progression or whatever have you right where it's just like and i do that with 800 guys i remember you know brian would have like i don't know 10 mile progression run right and i tell my middle distance guys because we had a very good middle distance crew um bunch of 150 or sub 150 guys off and on throughout the years and i tell them to show up to practice like 30 minutes later warm up and then stand at like, you know, we had the three mile loop. I'd be like, stand at this spot at around this time. And Brian's going to come around for his last loop. And you're going to do the last, you know, three mile loop with him or what have you. And it was a great way to, again, integrate. We've got a guy training for long stuff and kids literally training for the 800 meters, like interacting and you know coming together as one um and getting the best out of again both worlds but i think when you change things up a little bit like it takes down some of those dynamics that often often form you know yeah and and, and it's just using fatigue to your advantage right fatigue is can yep. be an equalizer between your more proficient and more conditioned athletes versus your less conditioned athletes so you know a lot of what we talked about right is like understanding, okay, our more conditioned athletes and, you know, higher performing athletes, we want to get them in a fatigue state to then equalize it. So then we get our less conditioned or younger athletes to be able to run with them in a fresh state. And that kind of creates a little bit of a balance. The other thing um, that's really important too, is building the bridge. If you're in the team setting between, you know, the younger athletes and, or, and the older athletes, the more seasoned and veteran and faster athletes, as well as building that rapport and that bridge between event groups. So I'll give two examples for that. Um, when I was coaching, say, the high performance West women, we would have we had everything right. We had 800 meter women all the way up to marathon women. So in my kind of general conditioning period, uh, we would have some, you know, uh, days where it's like, all right, this is going to be a workout where the middle distance women are going to shine. So distance women hang on for dear life, but then we also flip it. <laughs> All right. So now you, we just did this workout where the middle distance women, you know, shined and there's is more of a maintenance and robustness activity for them. But now this is a workout where the distance women will shine. So middle distance women hang on for dear life. <laughs> so, and it would always just be the same, right? It'd be like, we do stairs and hills um, at a, a park here in Portland. And so we do like these fast stair, you know, which is essentially stadium stairs, like, you know, sprint up that and then do some short hill repeats, whether it be 80 meters, 120 meters, 60 meters. And the distance women hated it. They hated it. But the middle distance women loved it. They're like, oh, it's one of my favorite 
you know, general conditioning, you know, workouts. But then three, four days later, we do six by a mile at threshold with 90 seconds recovery. And, you know, even the middle distance women were a little bit more varied. So some of them had a little bit longer recovery, um, maybe do 1200 or 1400, what have you. But it, the tables had turned. <laughs> but this helped build rapport, you know, especially within a club setting for women with a bunch of different racing schedules, as well as a bunch of different priorities. Some are more road focused that rather than track focused, et cetera. But it allowed them to come together and bring and get that rapport. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it worked really, really well. And you can do a little bit more of this kind of cross-pollination individualization, as I call it, in your general and earlier half of the season type training and conditioning. Um, it gets much trickier later on, but it still is something that you can do. Um, as well as like, say, building the bridge for the younger athletes to the older athletes if you're in a kind of a scholastic setting or even a club setting. Because if I have little Susie and Rebecca here who are freshmen and I want to get them to a place where, you know, um, or Megan and, uh, you know, Michaela are at as seniors. Well, I need to give them a taste of what it's like at their level and saying, hey, they were just like you once, young freshmen running this fast and now they're here. So it's also like letting them hop in as you had with, you know, Brian for parts of their workout at that speed and saying, this is where eventually you'll go. This is eventually where you'll get to and getting them excited and hungry about it. And maybe if this, you know, the senior statesmen and women are doing a workout of 400s, then the younger underclass men and women are only doing a hundred of it. If, if it's ability appropriate or 150, what have you, but just giving them a taste to, you know, help um, create a vision and a path towards where they can get to and aspire towards, I think is also really important too. Yeah. I think that's why that's part of the reason why I love like not just separating out your best athletes. You know, the other thing I'll give two ex other examples that I think are important, and this is kind of specific and maybe not for your high school or but um, whenever we had steeplers who were really good, Brian was a great example, but we also had a conference champ in, in first round nationals qualifier, Selena on the women's side, I would love doing their workouts where I'd put a hurdle on the inside of the track. We had like an inside lane, right? And then they're doing their 800s over hurdles. And the secondary group is just doing their 800s flat, right? And it, it allows you to mix in these groups that are maybe not quite at the same standard, but it also makes it where, for example, Selena, like she's having to hurdle in a group with people next to her and then also gets this direct feedback every hurdle if it was good or not, because she's going to lose a small step, right? Going over hurdle. But if she loses a lot, it tells you instantly, me and her, oh, that hurdle wasn't good. Because it, it, she should only lose a very small amount, you know, a half step when going over it. If, if all of a sudden she falls back and has to surge hard, that tells us, hey, we need to work on this hurdle. Like, that wasn't a good one. So I love doing that. And then the other thing that I think is important from an individualization standpoint is that um, I'd call it like doing half the workout together and then doing the last half or the last quarter, you know, on your, on, on, on your kind of, you know, something that you're good at. So for example, um, we'd go out to Hill in middle distance, long distance, everybody would do, you know, eight by 200 meter Hills. Right. And then after those eight, the long distance kids would split off and they'd go do, I don't know, some sort of fart lick, right? And the middle distance kids would split off and maybe they'd do some short hills or go on the flat and do some 200 flats or whatever have you. So that again, you're mixing in like, hey, we're going to do this first half together. And then the second half, we're going to have something specific. On the track, I would do this all the time where, again, you're doing 800s or Ks. Let's say <laughs> we're doing 800s. And my middle distance guys might do, you know, five 800s with the, the distance kids. 
And then they would split off and say, okay, now we're going to do some speed endurance, right? In a fatigue state and work on this component over here. And I think, again, where you can kind of, you can almost individualize the tail end of workouts uh, for specific kinds of workouts um, to get, you know, that individualization or that, that bang for your buck. The other way, you know, you can also do this on the flip side, which is for my middle distance athletes, often what I do is we'd show up a little early, get in some pure speed stuff, maybe like five by 60 meters, take a long recovery, and then hop in and do some 400s or 600s or 800s with the distance kids in a slightly fatigued state to work on like our strength and our aerobic ability, you know? So again, it's often you can, how you modulate or manipulate it, you can kind of get the best of both worlds individualizing within this kind of group or team set. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's the key is within the team setting and making sure that the team, the team and the, you know, like we said, relationships and, um, you know, the reciprocation of, you know, strengths and weaknesses to help you know, have a rising tide lift all boats is the key. Um, the other thing is too, is just in general, as a coach, from a general standpoint, I'd always take a, you know, I'll anticipate the degree of breakdown that I wanted a session to have upon that athlete physically and mentally, right? Both to their physical fitness and mental fitness. And when, and if that breakdown started to present itself radically early, of course we would pivot and shift. And then two is as you get to know the person and the athlete better through, you know, just repeated interaction. That's why, again, it, that laying that foundation is so important up front. You can start to anticipate when and where that breakdown could and should occur with them, provided everything is kind of normal, not coming off sick or stress or what have you. Um, but the, the key is, is saying, okay, for the younger athlete, the less conditioned athlete, less robust athlete, that breakdown is probably going to happen sooner and or the severity interpreted by the amount of breakdown they um, are subject to is probably going to be bigger just because there's not as robust in condition and can filter it. And, um, you know, for the older athlete, again, longer time horizon or work duration horizon before breakdown really starts to happen. And then ideally probably shorter recovery horizons because again, they're just more conditioned and robust. So with that, as a coach, that is essentially always the, you know, kind of background um, lens I'm looking through for any workout for an athlete is, is there alignment between my anticipation of when the breakdown moment should start to manifest? You can see that in different types of ways with the athlete, right? Their facial expression, their breathing rate, um, you know, their ability to hold or keep pace. Um, if they start to, you know, you give them a recovery range of say like 90 seconds to two minutes and they start to really lag and start to take the two minutes more than early on in the workout, they're taking like 95, you know, seconds to hundred seconds recovery in between the, the reps in a series or a set. And then as a coach, you can color that lens and say, is this going the direction I want? And that is the key thing as a coach is understanding for each person you're co working with and um, impacting in a workout, you have to have kind of a, um, a script or I, I should say a game plan, so to speak, about the direction of the breakdown you want to see. Because if we just stay rigid and stick with the plan, no ifs, ands, or buts, the athlete will get the work done for sure. But then now you have to say, how long is the time horizons for rebuilding and repair and recovery relative to the stressful bout that we induced on them? And if you just take that cookie cutter approach, everyone does the same reps count at the same, um, you know, rest interval, maybe at different quote unquote paces for their ability. The reality is, well, that's going to everyone's interpretation of that stress and stimuli will be different based off where they're coming from. And then the, the most important thing is the recovery horizon will be different. And I think that's the hardest thing to anticipate is the recovery horizon for an individual. If you don't know them and you don't know that things stress that uh, have a high stress yield on them or a low stress yield on them. I'll give an example, like we've talked about often typically for, you know, those distance athletes, 
the high CNS type work, whether it's in the gym with weights, plyos, sprints, you know, tends to have a really high recovery penalty that takes them many, many days to bounce back from versus, you know, a long aerobic run or threshold activity they they actually get energy from and they bounce back quicker. It's inverted for those middle distance types, right? That CNS work primes them, it gets them alert, they're excited, all right, hey, I'm ready to go. And the you know high volume you know type work tends to deflate them. So with that in mind is understanding as Steve said, like identifying their kind of like quote unquote prototype or quote type of athlete they are and what's highly fatiguing, but also what's highly energizing in terms of work. Exactly. You know, I, and I would often see a high discrepancy, even with comparative 800 runners, oh, yeah. for example. I mean, the middle distances are the hardest yeah. because there is such volatility and variability in the type of people and dispositions and athletes that are good at middle distances. That's why you can come at it from so many different angles. Yeah. And I remember one year when we had, we had four guys between 148 and 149. And I remember the workouts were just like, you know, I had to know people's breaking points essentially. (laughs) Because some people literally, even though they all ran about the same time and all like went back and forth, like they just cycled through who was better. It wasn't like we had one dominant person. They just cycled through and, you know, Sometimes someone would be done and like toast after, you know, whatever. We'll just say, I'll keep it simple. After eight 200s and another could literally do 20 200s if they wanted to, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was up to me to understand and manipulate and modulate on like, oh, like you can do more. Oh, if you do more, you're going to be fried and really paying attention on the individual level of what those people needed and then also look at it from the psychology explaining like, Hey, I know you're, you know, you ran faster than, you know, Jimmy over here last week, but like Jimmy has a higher tolerance of this training stress physiologically. So they're going to do more. It has nothing to do with, you know, who's better or not. This is just what you need and you're going to need more of something else. And like putting that out clearly, um, was was important yeah and that again it comes back individualization in our I think our ability to individualize as coaches fundamentally comes back to us as coaches <laughs> and our philosophy and what type of program we want to run and what we value and esteem and not just what we say where it's like here's our mission here's our values here's words on t-shirts or banners right it's the behaviors it's what you do day in and day out how you react to certain situation, to situations in general as a coach and your consistency or lack thereof a consistency sends messages, right? And so when you, and that's really, we got to remember when we are um, at practice or when we're interacting with an athlete at all times, again, we have to remember that we're quote unquote on, like we're on stage, like we are being, um, you know, um, watched we're being judged we're and athletes are looking for that consistency or lack thereof and that trust component in a relationship you're always building and maintaining and very quickly can you erode and um you know uh, can erode and recede so based off how we're interacting like that's why i'm always mr cool all the time because if i ever get you know, really up and down, like a down Jones or really excited or really deflated athletes will know something's up with me versus like our head coach at the high school I'm working at now. It's like, he's out there yelling, hooping and hollering, but he's consistent. He's always out there yelling, hooping and hollering and always like losing his voice and, you know, having a good time. But that really comes back down to our behavior as coaches and consistency of behavior is a, is a core thing that gives the athletes that ability to feel like they're in psychologically safe place, provide the, you know, behavior is positive in nature, uh, and then allows them to feel like they can spread their wings individually and do these difficult things or try out, you know, these difficult things or take coaches on the fly edits to their workout because they know it's in their best interest because of the history of, 
um, evidence of behavior and good intentions behind you. And then just be able to say, okay, cool. Yes, coach. Instead of second doubting, questioning, and being hesitant towards making revisions in the quote unquote day's game plan. 100%. I think that's one of the the key things. And so if, if you've listened to this all the way through, thank you. Um, and you're thinking, okay, individualizing in a large setting. I think the key takeaway is get to know and connect with your athletes, no matter how many athletes that is. You know, this, I'm going to go back to my wife's a teacher, as many of you know, and we were talking the other day, the number one thing a principal can do at the elementary school level is get to know her students. If you know the students, then you can figure out how to interact with them. And also they became a person you care about and you can figure out what their needs and strengths and all that are. It's the same in coaching, right? Get to know your athletes. Once you have that, then it's about like being creative and troubleshooting and also knowing like what it is you're after. I think often what holds us back from individualization is we we read these textbooks and we think our our workouts have to be like physiologically perfect. Mm, yeah. Which means like you know, I need to do 6 800 with 90 seconds rest at this pace and if I don't it all goes oh, we won't get well, the VO2 max benefit and yeah. That, that, that's not how things work. That's not how things work. So it's okay if every once in a while you give someone extra rest in order to get yes. those extra repeats in. It's okay if instead of miles, you do 600s with skipping the 400 in between every once in a while to get like them interact or get them working out with others. That's fine. Like, that there's trade-offs in all of this stuff, but like that's the point. When you're individualizing in a group setting, you're going to have some trade-offs, but sometimes you need to make those trade-offs in order to do what's best for individuals, but also like get them training with everybody else in the team. Accept that. You're not gonna get perfect. Perfect isn't the goal. Mm-mm. The goal is to get people better. Goal's good enough, right? Yep. And I mean we just have to exactly. be satisfied with that reality it's it's the difference between you know being in the ballpark versus getting really specific about the corner you're standing on and sometimes we we do that we get so hyper specific about the corner we forget being in the ballpark of the zip code is good enough generally is good enough and that's long story short like the ability to individualize and individualize well as a coach comes back to you as who you are and your um ability to be okay with a certain degree of ambiguity a lot of people aren't we got that's why like numbers and everything in coaching is you're gonna run 45 miles this week 45 miles next week then we're gonna bump you up to 50 and then 55 and then 60 and nice intervals of five because that's clean nice and what have you you know if you listen to us long enough and frequently enough you know that you know while it's nice in theory it's not reality (laughs) exactly we have to deal with reality. So maybe that's your takeaway is deal with the reality of the situation. Figure it out as best you can. And and just, you know, as a coach, it's like keep trying things and that will put you in the best position. And they're important dialogues so. and discussions to be had, right? I mean, you know, I learned a lot just from what Steve uh, shared today personally. Like, oh, I never thought about doing like that. You know, the other valuable area to get that kind of constant dialogue and discussion about these important topics is the scholar clubhouse. I mean, we're having them, we're actually making more channels, right? In the clubhouse, we have different channels, which is kind of highlighted by the topic that is under discussion. You know, we recently made the art of coaching channel because there was a lot of discussion about the philosophy and soft side and, you know, value of coaches experiences, maybe who might not have as much formal education. And it was kind of a, you know, ongoing theme that was happening in a lot of different areas. And so we're like, okay, we're gonna make this. We recently made a dedicated biomechanics channel because there's a lot of interest in biomechanics and, you know, the degrees of variability and what is, you know, correct or incorrect technique and what have you. We also have made a, you know, and Steve's real excited about this, a physiology channel where it's just nerds on physiology, nerding about that, Um, you know, and so as 
I know, baby. But as more scholars sign up and these needs present itself, more and more robust discussions are happening day in and day out. And I cannot tell you the high school channel that we have in the Scholar Clubhouse. It's amazing coming back into high school coaching and seeing some of the best high school coaches, some of the most thoughtful high school coaches in the U.S. talking back and forth about, hey, how do we troubleshoot these different constraints that athletes are presenting to us, whether it's scheduling, psychology, physiology, what have you. It's just amazing to see the back and forth going. I mean, it's uh, you could just, you know, take out a pen and paper and take notes all day because you got men and women with many, many years of experience, many, many years of like messing up saying, yep, I did it like this. It didn't work out. And now I'm doing it like this and it's working out better. I'm you, you can't, you really just can't get that anywhere else. You can't type it into Google and find some nice, neat blog post or, you know, a, uh, it's essentially what we have is a lot of monologues happening. Right. And this is an actual real discussion and dialogue. So if you're not a scholar and you want to get in, well, getting in is good at the rock bottom price of a dollar a day, which is pennies on the dollar with the way inflation's going, sign up. Don't wait.